Welcome to Floods of Justice. Today we are continuing the discussion on racism in America. We'll be right back. If you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5. And I want to read verse 24 where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev, he is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the coffee house at Second and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Good morning, Pastor Kevin. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? Good, good, good. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. It's good to have everybody here. We are in the coffee house, and there is no construction outside. Yeah, yeah. No, no background noise. Yeah, so yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe everybody can hear us, especially on the Facebook Live, who, who are watching us without all the, uh, without all the noise. But it's good to be back. This is what our third or fourth week back in the coffee house. So, yes. Yeah. So things are. Uh, uh, slowly returning to somewhat normal, at least on that end. There's a lot of things that are not normal. Everything else <laughs> in the world doesn't seem normal. You look on the news, nothing That's right. feels that, normal. But Yeah, and I'm still looking for some normalcy. I mean, the last three months, and then, of course, especially the last month now, or three weeks anyway, have been um, uh, very, very difficult um, for, uh, for, for me, but for a lot of other people. Uh, and, uh, and so we're just going to continue that conversation on, on um, racism, white supremacy, the protest, uh, just whatever uh, comes up during this conversation because it's, uh, you know, the conversa- conversation doesn't solve anything, but, uh, but it's a good starting place. There has to be uh, action taken. And at the very least, um, you know, if you're going to talk and protest, make sure you're registered to vote and go vote. At the ver- that's the very least yeah. uh, you can do. And now in Tennessee, at least right now, I mean, it's all tied up in the courts, but it looks like we'll be able to do mail-in uh, balloting, which would be a good thing. I don't know why we just don't do it online and just be done with it. But, uh, uh, but now we need all, especially all the, all the younger people out there who are energetic and, and uh, wanting to see change. Um, it's extremely important that, uh, uh, that you go vote. It's really important that you vote like I do. But outside of that, just go... <laughs> Just go and uh, and vote. We'll and, post a voting guide on, <laughs> on the podcast. Well, exactly. the Ann campaign has a voting guide, so yeah. go to theandcampaign.org, I think, or you can just uh, Google that, and they have a really good, I think, voting guide um, from an evangelical perspective for people who are who are serious about both biblical values and social justice. So, well, and it's really not it, it, it's not just the presidential campaign. In November, right? The the big part is the local. Well, local, to me, local effect. is always more important. I yeah. mean, that, that's where the biggest difference can be made. Yeah. Um, you know, from uh, from school boards on to uh, commissioners and aldermen, and then of course at the state level. But uh, uh, you can really let your voice be heard at the at the local level by voting and, and by getting involved. I mean, look at what's happened um, even at the local level. I mean, Minneapolis after the two weeks of protest have decided to to reorganize and uh, um, and uh, um, start the process of, of uh, defunding the, the police. And we need yeah. to talk about sometimes because people got the wrong idea what that means about defunding. It's yeah. really, from my perspective, it's really a positive thing. It's really a, a shift in priorities and a return to, or we've never been there, but uh, a, an opportunity to try to do restorative justice instead of just uh, punitive justice. So maybe uh, in a week or two, we'll bring in some people. I got a friend who's very, very involved in that and uh, maybe bring her in and, and uh, let her talk about 
uh, what, uh, what that means, what people mean when they say defund the police. Um, it really just means to you know, take away the military and, and the fear, really, the police and do more social uh, activism and more um, um, you know, spend money in a better place than just on more military gear. But anyway, that's enough of that. We've got a, a great guest this morning, and uh, I want us to get started. But I want to welcome uh, Anthony uh, Hendricks to our podcast today. Uh, we're going to continue the discussion. Anthony is the director uh, of the Center for Biblical Unity at Williamson College. Um, I remember when that school started and, and taught there for uh, off and on for quite a while. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, it was back in the early 2000s. Back, oh, I, well, it may have been the 90s. 90s, late I, don't, 90s. I don't even remember. Yeah. I, I'm an old guy. I'm old. Anthony. <laughs> I don't know if you realize that, but I am. I'm an old guy. Uh, but the Center for Biblical Unity. He also co-leads a really, really great organization. Um, and maybe it's not quite an organization yet, but it's it, just a, a grassroots, a, yeah, movement, kind man. of organic, yeah. thing called the Public, where they have a public conversations on race, and they're starting a book study here in a. In a is it this week? You start uh, next Tuesday. The next 16th. Tuesday, starting a book study on white fragility, and uh, but the, the public is soon going to be an advocacy group as well. So uh, to, yeah. you know, to read, educate yourself, uh, but now get involved in trying to make a change. So welcome to Floods of Justice. Anthony, how you doing? Oh, man, I'm tired, but I'm glad to be here. Um, uh, looking forward to uh, an, the continued conversation. Um, that should hopefully lead to some action by many of your listeners. So like you said, this is just the beginning. So. It really, and it's sad that it's just the beginning. Yeah. I mean, this has been going on for, for so long. Yeah, about 400 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a blink. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, now it's just the beginning. It's like, where has everybody been yeah. for, you know, for yeah. all these years? Mm -hmm. And um, but If only they had podcasts. If only they had podcasts right. back then. Right. You know, but yeah, so, um, you know, it's good for a lot of people. This is a brand new conversation. And by, by that, I mean people really coming from white perspective. It's kind mm -hmm. of a brand new conversation. Um, and so... Um, uh, but it's an important conversation, but hopefully it leads hopefully it leads to action. I think what we've seen in the protests is that it is leading to action. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. What's been your initial response to, I, I guess, the, the white response and, and what you're discussing with the public? Um, I think, by and large, the, um, the response has been much like you probably have heard this before, Kevin, as you've been talking to different um, white people, but, man, I didn't know. You know, I, man, how long has this been happening? Like, it's this um, surprise almost. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, where have I been? Um, I've gotten that response. Um, I've gotten, we've gotten a lot of responses. Like, man, I'm so glad you, you guys are doing this. I'm learning so much. Um, you know, I'm new. I, I hear that a lot. I'm new to this conversation. Um, but it's really been, uh, it's been good for me. Uh, uh, other responses. Oh, I got a couple of responses. Uh, you know, you guys are creating division. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you get some of those. Um, but by and large, man, it's been really positive. Um, creating division. Like it wasn't there before? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Because, um, you, know, you know, I've gotten to a place, man, where I can't say that that stuff doesn't hurt because it does. Um, you know, last week, man, before we had this big rally, um, I was sitting on my front porch and I was thinking, man, how did Martin Luther King do this? Like, you know, his stuff was on a national scale and we're just local. And I was like, you know, I knew we were going to have a big turnout last week um, over at New Hope, you know, ended up being about 600 people. Wow. But I also was reading a lot of vitriolic um, uh, posts on Facebook about who was coming and all that. 
And I just thought, man, like, he was under that kind of pressure almost every day. And his house was burned and bombed. And I'm like, dude, I had so much respect for that man. Um, and ultimately, he gave his life for this movement. But um, so it's just there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but then you get, you know, some people who are just approaching this issue um, from this p place of, well, I know everything. And so it must be you. It must be you creating this division. And, uh, you know, that perspective comes from such a, an uninformed place. And um, uh, I believe it was Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, that gave me that language. Uh, because before I would get pretty angry when people would say stuff like that. Now I'm just kind of like, man, that's unfortunate. Um, uh, you need to go and educate yourself some more before you begin to throw yourself into conversations like this because you're uninformed. Yeah, education is important, um, and uh, what I keep hearing from from um, my black brothers and sisters is, you know, it's not up to us to educate you. Right. In fact, that's where a lot of the the tiredness comes from. It's mm -hmm. like we've been trying to tell you for for decades, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And uh, and so just go educate yourself, and and then you know if you got questions, feel free to come back and ask me some questions. But the questions are are from a are, are from an educated perspective, and right. not and not just. Uh, well, you know, how come it's this way, or how come? Well, just read and read all of your history. You right. Know? And that I think, you know, there, there's that old saying: history is written by the winners, and um, mm -hmm. and I think you really see that. If you don't yet see that, you see that. Yeah, you should. I think a lot of it. History is written by those in power. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that that I've been surprised at, um, as I've been studying for the last probably ten or fifteen years, is that a lot of this history, even though it was written by those in power. It's not hidden. I mean, no, all, you, all you got to do is run downtown yeah. and, and start looking through, you know, a lot of the archives, and it's right there in when, black and white. When I was teaching sociology, um, we would deal with this, and uh, uh, one of my favorite persons to refer to is W.E.B. Dubois. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I would tell people some of his research that he did on, uh, on the life of, uh, back then the term was Negroes, but mm -hmm. on the life of the African Americans back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm -hmm the amount of research that he did, and it's all handwritten because you didn't have computers right. back then, yeah, yeah. Uh, of, just, of just plotting, uh, you know, showing on graphs uh, how, uh, how the African American is struggling, how, uh, how racism is affecting them, the importance of religion, mm -hmm. uh, all this kind of stuff. And that's just, you can go back farther than that, but, but if you want something uh, that's somewhat old, uh, you know, and, and uh, just look at his stuff and what he did, and then fortunately things haven't really changed a whole no. lot. I mean, he ended up getting discouraged and, right. and moved to Africa, renounced his citizenship because he, the change that he was hoping would happen, he was one of the founders of the NAACP, and the change that he hoped would happen never happened. Right. Uh, and then, you know, Dr. King was the same way. It seemed like to me that, you know, he, this, is, this is for everyone just to keep, you know, to keep going. We'll, we'll throw it out there. No one is for the violence, but the protesting is, is extremely important. And sometimes, um, you know, don't be, don't be so hard on the looters um, when and and forget the Boston Tea Party. Oh yeah, you know don't be. Oh, yeah. But it was like you know after this after the Civil War during during the initial years of Reconstruction there was tons of progress being made. Absolutely. And then Jim Crow came in and stopped that. Actually, Andrew Johnson came well, in. <laughs> Let's yeah, put his yeah, name on it. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise known as Andrew jo Jim Crow. Otherwise known as Andrew Johnson. So so that put a kibosh on whatever um, you know uh, gains were being made. Yeah. And then 
And then, of course, you had the, the lost cause narrative that started really out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you get to the civil rights movement and things seem to be, there seem to be some changes, although we have to realize, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you are. I mean, I'm sure you get more frustrated than I do seeing it, but you see all these peaceful protests of Dr. King and people saying we should be like that. And it's like, okay, have you forgotten <laughs> what happened? How many yeah. times he was beaten up, thrown yeah. in jail, John Lewis, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then, of course, ultimately killed. So, yeah. no, no, there, there, was, there was this kind of thing back there also. And, but then it was like right after the Civil Rights Movement, um, then all of a sudden— here comes here comes white power back in and and, and stops that yeah um, yeah and a lot of the laws that um, uh, that we have in place uh, when you know when it comes to uh, desegregation or, or and all you know let's desegregate the schools but then as a result of that white churches started Christian schools and yeah um, and then even in our own state capital the the Nathan Bedford Forest bus wasn't put up until the mid 70s it mm -hmm. wasn't something back in the, the early yeah know, 18 eight, late 1800s early 1900s and then most recently, laws that have been passed to protect monuments. Um, and so it's like every time we make progress, something. And so now here we are again on, on the cusp of that, where there's some change happening. There's some change happening. And, and just, uh, you know, okay, what is it that's going to stop it? And let's, and, let's, and let's make sure that we fight against that so mm -hmm. that it doesn't stop. That, so that, you know, two years from now, three years from now, we're, we're not looking back at this time saying, well, what was that about? Yeah, you know, I think in all of those cases, as you as you walk through history, there is there has always been an opportunity um, for those in power, and in particular for those in the church, to step up and be the Micah Six Eight community that we've been called to be. Um, and at almost every time um, we fail, the, the church, the white church has failed. Those in power have failed, and so. But but the, the problem with all of this, though, Kev, is that. Um, when people don't know that history, um, you, you're left to your biases, which have been developed by racist ideas. And so when you look at the African-American community and you see the disparities, the idea is, well, we, we, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't be educated. We're not that smart. We're inferior. We've made poor decisions. Um, all of those things, rather than saying, um, in spite of the laws that were passed, um, the, 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 the go around to those laws have caused a lot of the, um, uh, the, the positions that African-Americans find themselves in, by and large. And you look at, you know, the city I'm from, Baltimore, you look at Ch Chicago, Detroit, all of these areas where African-Americans were relegated to. And then in spite of the laws that were passed, um, folks just did what they wanted to do. They found ways around that, those laws to make sure that we are kept in our place. If you don't know all of that, then you look at um, our position, you're like, well, they could have pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. And as Martin Luther King said, you know, well, you got to have some boots to start out with to, to pull them up, right? And so, um, you know, that's why, th that's the importance to me of the historical narrative, the true historical narrative. Because it's my, it's my belief that if, if I'm a believer and I have the spirit of God living within me, there is no way that I can look at the history of this country and just brush it off and keep living the way I've been living. If that, if that's the truth, then I've got to question whether the spirit of God is really living within you. Because if you see that a people group have been treated the way African-Americans have been treated in this country, many times in the name of Jesus and in the name of conversion, um, man, there's got, there's something, something's lost somewhere. Yeah. Something. 
excuse me, something's lost, lost without a doubt. And, and that's where, you know, um, like a lot, of, a lot of white people who are new to this conversation, they're going through that typical white guilt right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like you go through the seven stages of grief. Right. Because, you know, because eventually you realize, well, what I've been taught growing up is, is a lie. Mm-hmm. And, and that's based on the fact that, that it's half truth. And, right. and we were brought up a half truth is a whole lie. Right. And so we're given half of, of, uh, of U.S. history and now we're, we, we say something about the Native Americans, and we, some, we say something about how horrible slavery was, uh, but then we move right, right on into something else, and that's just, that's just it, and without realizing um, the contributions. I mean, I, you know, I was a big Jim Thorpe fan growing up, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and I remember reading books about him, and even then thinking, what? you got to be kidding me. And mm-hmm. then as I got older and started reading other types of books about him that really told mm-hmm. what was going on in that time, yeah. then it was like, Wow, um, and then you know, like I said, the same thing with um, uh, with the African American culture. Basically, every group, every group in the United States, um, besides the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, has been um, discriminated against and treated cruelly at some point or another. The difference is, it was just maybe a phase, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. whereas with African Americans, it's been over four hundred years, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and. And that runaround, you know, like I, I told this one time, I can't remember who we were talking to on the podcast, but when I was in junior high is when Nashville decided to desegregate schools. Mm-hmm. And I was going to Bellevue Junior High at the time. Uh, my, my brother was going to Bellevue High School. Bellevue High School ended up shutting down, and we all got sent to Hillwood High School. But that initial year of desegregation, um, you know, once it was we got to desegregate our schools, uh, the Bellevue schools or, or Metro, I don't know who all did it, but they put all these portables outside uh, around and Bellevue Junior High was an old building, looked like the Alamo, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and so okay, we're desegregating schools. Well, then what happened was all the white kids went to the portables because they were new, they had good air conditioner, good air, and all the all the black kids, inner city kids, went into um, the, the old the, structure, the, the old mm-hmm. structure. Now somehow or another, I got placed in the old structure, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, but I was like, you know, uh, one of the few well, white people in the old structure. But I was beginning to see it. They had. On the same school campus, yeah. they had better air conditioner, better books, <laughs> but, yeah. and were treated incredibly different from the people who were who were in uh, this. So, so we desegregated, but then we there was a, a end around. Yeah. Okay, we're going to desegregate the schools, but we're going to segregate our school. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I that don't happened, know. It yeah. happened constantly. Yeah. In history, like you, they desegregate desegregated the um, public swimming pools. Yeah. Right. So what they do? They went and filled the pools in. Right. Fill yeah. the men with cement. So they said we'd rather lose access to this pool than swim in the same pool with African-Americans. That's ridiculous, man. Yeah. But that's what happened. And that's when you look in, uh, I think, the early 70s. Uh, yeah. Early 70s is when people started getting a lot of pools in their homes. That's when they started building in ground pools in their homes. Yeah. And you can look at all same time when all of the Christian schools started being. Yeah. It's like just look, just look at history and, and you'll see it. If you want to see it, if you want to see it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then and then once you start seeing it, then you really start, mm-hmm. you know, start seeing it everywhere, and yeah. then, and then you know you realize that okay, as a white guy, all right, I may not have, I was too young to do anything about it, but then you start to recognize um, uh, the advantage that you have, mm-hmm. just the, you know, and and, uh, and boy, if you want to make. Uh, the dominant culture mad bring up white privilege and white fragility. Oh my gosh! Um, or, and, or supremacy. Yeah, yeah, but really white because they can almost say, "Well, I'm not a white supremacist." But mm-hmm. 
but uh, you know yeah, that's debatable yeah it's like yeah but if you have but if you have a, a conversation like i was having a conversation a few months ago with a guy and he said and he was talking about race it was a white guy and he said something and i said what you just said is perfect illustration of, of, of white fragility mm-hmm. man alive the whole conversation changed and he was just angry and got defensive and yeah and in my mind i was going well all you're doing is that's exactly what <laughs> proven we're talking all you're doing is making the point yeah and so that's why and i may be wrong but what i try to tell um you know my my uh, my white brothers and sisters is that you cannot truly have a discussion on race until you're willing to admit mm-hmm. white privilege and white fragility mm-hmm. you have but you, you have to admit that mm-hmm. and then now we can have a, now we can have a discussion but if you're not even willing to admit to admit that then it's just you just you're just banging your head against a wall well it's like robin d'angelo said in her book white fragility one of the things that it allows a white person to do is they can then just step away from the conversation mm-hmm. if i get upset about this then that just cuts off it cuts it off and i can go back to my life the way it was it's kind of like um, I love the illustration that you see in um, in the Matrix when um, uh, when uh, uh, the I forgot his name. Um, I've never saw the movie. Are so. you kidding me, no. dude? <laughs> I'm a West. I got How do you hang out with yeah, him? Yeah, I know. Okay, this <laughs> so, cross the uh, line. I'm there, sorry. So I'm there's, sorry. there's a scene, man. There's a scene in the beginning of the first um, the first uh, movie, and. Um, uh, I cannot remember the guy's name. Lawrence Fishburne, Neo, Fishburne, or Neo, the, Neo, and what's Lawrence Fishburne? I know, character? I know. Uh, I cannot believe I forget this. But anyway, they sit down and he pulls out um, this little, um, like almost like a little medicine box, and he pulls out these two pills: this red pill, red pill, and this blue pill. And I'm telling you, man, it is almost an identical um, uh, conversation about the gospel. I'm serious. Yeah. When I first heard it, I was like. Did a Christian write this movie? I'm serious. Oh, there's symbolism throughout the oh, whole movie. Oh, absolutely. It's spot and on. So, so he talks about, you know, he gives Neo this choice, um, whether you can take the red pill or the blue pill. And he talks about if you take the red pill, then that's going to pull you out of the matrix. And in the matrix is basically this life that you think you're living, but it's a computer. It, it's all computer-based. You're in this computer-generated um, world, but it looks just like everyday life, right? And he says... You, you can take this red pill and it'll take you down this rabbit hole and you'll, you'll, you'll not know what you're going into, but you'll be out of this fake world. And, and so I, I talk often about how, you know, a lot of people, man, they're just okay with taking this blue pill and keeping on, keeping on, even though it's a false reality, but they, they'd love to live in that false reality because it doesn't challenge you to think differently. It doesn't challenge you to live differently. And so most people, if given that choice, I think they'll take the blue pill. Yeah. Um, I like to say, man, I want to be a red pill kind of guy. Yeah. Right? I don't know what's around the corner, but I refuse to live in the reality that I used to live in growing up. And yeah. so um, I just I want to I give that uh, that option to people. You want to take the red pill? Or you want to take the blue pill? Yeah, I, I would say and again. I, you know, you, first of all, you got to realize I grew up in a very, very conservative fundamentalist home, and, mm-hmm. and if you were in the movie theater when Jesus returned, you weren't going. <laughs> all right, okay. So, so I, I still go Morpheus, to movies. That's his name. There you go. I, I still go. I still go to movies and feel a little bit guilty <laughs> when I go because I've got I've got to deal with that in the past. But it sounds well, as you were explaining that, it sounds like. You know, I mean, it's it's not that it's an alternative reality, but it's it's a it's a reality that we can bring, and that's the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. That take this red pill. I thought red letter Christians. You know, take this red pill, 
And, uh, you know, and as, as believers, we're not sure what's around the corner, but we, we do have an idea of what the kingdom of God is to look like. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, and we're to be doing our part, um, bringing the, you know, the kingdom of God is here. We're bringing the kingdom of God with us. And when Christ returns, the kingdom of God will be fulfilled. Right. Uh, and that is a different reality right. than what we are experiencing today. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think, and I think most people, again, and most people in the churches, they're going to take that blue pill because um, they, the way things, especially if the way things are going is, right. is to your uh, advantage. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And if the way thing, it, all right, things may be chaotic, um, but, um, but at the end of the day, I know I can go home, got a, you know, a nice house, nice car, my kids, dog, you know, and so I, okay, I can do this. But if you don't have that, then, you know, what do you do when there's chaos all around you, but then mm-hmm. the chaos is not your fault and you cannot get out of that, you know, that yeah. nature because it's just a everyday, uh, it's an everyday feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I try to get people out of that, you know, that guilt, you know, um, I can't remember. I read so many books, man, but um, it may have been Robin, but talking about that good, bad binary, it was, it was Robin D'Angelo where she talks about how we get out of, if you can get out of this good, bad binary that we have in this country, like, you know, if, if you have any racist tendency, then you're a bad person. And, um, and I think when, when, whenever you start talking about supremacy, privilege, any of those words, I think that's where people go. They go to this bad binary and it's like, you're calling me a bad person. And yesterday I was at a church and I specifically said, when we talk about white supremacy, we are not saying that you are a bad person. What we are saying is you have been raised in a racialized society, just like everybody has. So you will have racist tendencies. That doesn't make you a bad person. That just makes you a racialized person. And so if we can get people to believe that and just to, to, to just kind of say, okay, that's the reality. Okay, now let's move forward. I think most, I think a lot of white people just have a hard time making that their reality so that they might be able to move forward. Yeah. And so what happens is they end up blaming the deliverer of the information rather than internalizing it and just sitting in it for a while and deal with it. Like, okay, so what does this mean about me? And then how can I take this and become a better person in this reality? Um, That's just, it seems to be really difficult. And so I have had, I've had friends, people who have, and we had a conversation about this yesterday. I had a group of men, um, black and white, and we were talking about um, how to deliver the message of white supremacy, white privilege. Um, And, and, and the the brothers that were in the room, the African-American men, who all exist in, in white spaces, we were just kind of um, talking about uh, how you still have to couch the message in the context of a supreme thought process, if, if you understand what I'm saying. So as an African-American delivering this message, I just can't come out and say those words because the, 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 the majority culture can't receive it that way. So as I, even as I'm putting together the truth, I have to water it down. I have, to, I have to deliver it with more grace so that the dominant culture might receive it. Sometimes I struggle with that, Kev, because I'm like, man, we've had 400 years yeah. of dealing with this mess. And so, and, and so now when I just want to bring it, when I want to take those 400 years and just present it to you and say, here, you do the research, I still have to bring it in a way that you're comfortable with 
because you're the dominant culture. Sometimes I struggle with that, man. And so, um, so you know, I think we came to an agreement that, yeah, you got you to gotta sugarcoat a little bit. You got to bring more grace when you're delivering that message if you want them to hear it and to receive it. And so it's unfortunate, man. Um, some days I get up and I'm like, okay, we, we'll, we, let's do this. Other days I get up and I'm like, man, I'm tired of this. I'm like W.E.B., right? Um, sometimes I do. I want to just pack it all up and move and get just because there are days when I get up and I'm like, man, is, is anything ever going to change? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, um, this whole discussion has always been couched in the context of economics. And I think if, if things are going to change, they're going to have to be some economic ref, um, um, uh, ramifications in this country in order for it to change. And I don't know if people who are in power are ready to do that. Yeah, well, I can tell you they're not. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up, maybe talk about what you mean by the economics having to change. Yeah. Right. The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at Second and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of Second and Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. Welcome back to Floods of Justice. We were just entering the discussion of a, a shift between uh, the economic change that is going to be required. Anthony, you were talking about how there's probably going to need to be some kind of economic shift and people are going to have to be willing. The people of power and, and wealth are going to have to be willing to have a dynamic shift. Yeah. And that's kind yeah. of where we're headed now. Yeah, if I, I mean, if I can jump in there, let, yeah. you know, just kind of put it in, in a little bit of context in, in history, just world history. Um, anytime there's a change in, in the economic system, um, there is incredible turmoil. Um, and again, that's thrown this term out there before, the term anime, just when the, the norms are no longer strong enough to keep people in line or people don't know what the norms are anymore. And so when, you know, when we went from agriculture to industrial, um, I, you you look at history, I mean, his, <laughs> we were in chaos um, yeah. because the economics were changing. Um, in a lot of ways, moving from industrial to modern and postmodern, you've seen that. Uh, of course, in our own history, if you go back, I mean, one of the reasons that slavery did hang around as long as it did was because of the economic ramifications if you get rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, slavery this is really why our founding fathers who were, um, um, who, who at least some of our founding fathers, how they could write, um, documents that talked about the equality of everyone, uh, but still owned slaves. And, uh, and some of them uh, even write about how they put stuff in play, uh, knowing that eventually slavery would be overturned, but they could not um, afford to rebel against a country, set up a new country, and, and get rid of the economy mm -hmm. all at the same time. And so they chose two of the three and let the third one just... And again, that was wrong, but I'm just, just to kind of put some context into it. So now here we are again um, where, you know, I mean, you had the pandemic. People are losing their job. Uh, some people will never be able to go back to work. Um, and, and then you have this injustice of, uh, of George Floyd and, and, of course, you know, tons of other people who preceded that. That was kind of like the tipping point, I mm -hmm. think, 
Um, and now the and now the economy and now and now people are seeing with their own eyes. People didn't get upset about the death of George Floyd, but boy, all of a sudden they got upset when businesses were being looted. Yeah, you know, and so that and, and part of that is just the result of capitalism, where where products and buildings and and things become more important um, than you know than, than personal lives. That's now. You know, there's no economic system that's without fault, uh, but the glorification of capitalism in our society, almost the almost making it an idol, and then saying that's what the Bible teaches, is is, uh, is is just it's just incredible to me that people who follow and read the same scriptures that I read come to such different uh, conclusions. So I think Anthony's right, and I, don't, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, that part of part of what's going on is this economic change, and things are not really going to be equal until there is some type of equality when it comes uh, to economics. So, yeah, I'm, you know, our country started uh, this way, right? It started with free labor. So there were there were people's lives that were sacrificed in order for us to build the economy that we currently have, um, and that has been the case uh, in each generation. There has been there have been decisions made that the, the, our capitalistic society is more important than people. And so here we are again um, with this pandemic, right? It's like, why is this push to get back to work? It's all about capitalism, right? And so, um, and so again, the reason that I, I speak about history so much is because when you see the history of disparities and injustices that have been, happened to people of color, especially in the area of economics, there has to be some kind of repair economically. And so, and I know that that's the, the, the bad R word, but there has to be re repair rations, right? That's what that word is all yeah. about. And so, um, and I believe that many in power know that and they're unwilling to go there. That's why that, it's the, the discussion of reparations is so volatile it's because, well, it's, not, it's a couple of reasons, I think. I think the first reason is because I think many people who are in power feel like, um, you know, they worked hard to, to build their wealth. And it's like, it, but they feel like, or they think that African-Americans haven't worked hard over the years. Man, we've, we've worked extra hard. Yeah. It's just that we didn't get any of the benefits of us working hard, right? We right. worked really hard, yet, you know, FHA loan is passed, right? That bill is passed. We can't even get access to it, right? Because when it was passed, those who were farmers and agricultural, I mean, agri uh, farmers and domestic workers, could, we didn't have access to it. So we couldn't get a loan to buy a home to begin to build on that wealth. And so, like, it, it, I'm, my hope is that as people continue to read and study history, folks who, are, who have wealth will say, man, we've got to do something economically to bring this unbalance in, in wealth, this wealth gap to kind of close it a little bit. I just don't know, man, if people are willing to do that. Yeah. Well, the wealth gap, I mean, there's been tons of studies. And so, you know, this that the wealth gap, not just between rich and poor, but between black and white mm -hmm. has widened, not, oh, absolutely. not narrowed. Yeah. Um, you know, so the rich are getting richer. Um, but at the same time, you know, just that, uh, uh, again, it goes back to Native Americans and African Americans, the two, the two people who were uh, mistreated um, are still at the bottom of, of all those scales all these, all these years later. 
Um, and so we need to we need to talk. I mean, I know people are talking about reparations, but we need to really, really talk about that and have a broader discussion. And people need to realize what what we're saying mm-hmm. um, when when we when we um, when we talk about that. Because mm-hmm. I think you know I think you're right. I mean, after just a few years in in um, camps in the United States, when the, when Chinese Americans were were let go, mm-hmm. they were they were given reparations immediately. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But yet, if you bring up reparations. Um, to African Americans, all of a sudden, it's it's uh, you know it's a bad thing, um, but it, but it is just part of our uh, part of our capitalistic capitalistic system. And um, you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago of, of uh, the book um, uh, Weber Max Max Weber's book on uh, on uh, on uh, capitalism and Protestantism and the spirit of capitalism. Mm. Um, that basically. Um, <laughs> You know, it was a secular social, sociology book mm-hmm. like in the late 1800s um, that basically tied um, the quote-unquote American work ethic um, to Calvinism. Mm. And basically, how do you know you're one of God's chosen? Well, because you have been blessed financially. So how do you get blessed financially? Well, you work hard. Mm. And so if you work really hard and you make a lot of money, that means you're... you're you're one God's of favor is on you. God's favor is on you. Yeah, and this was a secular sociologist from Germany writing that <laughs> in the late 1800s. Right. And uh, to me, it paved the way for the prosperity gospel that mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. that we have today. Yeah. You know, and so yeah. and so we work really, really hard to show that God's favor is on us. Right. Uh, but yet, without realizing that I can I can work hard, and because of the advantage that I have, when I was teaching sociology, I'd give this illustration. You got the in the United States. Okay, there was the move to go west. Okay, mm-hmm. so people started to go west. Well, people were white people because the African Americans were slaves, so mm-hmm. they could not go west. Mm-hmm. And so this family leaves, just hypothetical family leaves the east. They travel. They're, they're wanting to go all the way to California, but they get stuck in Oklahoma mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a law, you know, that says, hey, if you can fight the Native Americans and keep them off your land, you can stake out your land and send us the deed, and the United States will give you that land. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You can still do that in parts of Alaska mm-hmm. if you want mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to mm-hmm. go to Alaska. Right. So, this family, they leave the, the east, um, and they go, and they get to Oklahoma, and they stake off this land. Did they work hard? Yeah, they worked hard. Mm-hmm. Raising cattle, raising whatever. Uh, generations go by. Oil is found on their land. Mm-hmm. Now, the land that was given to them for free, now they're filthy rich mm-hmm. because oil mm-hmm. was on that land. Mm-hmm. Did they work hard? Well, yeah, they, but that, you, you see, but the African-American wasn't given that it, Right. opportunity to right. go west they had to stay right and so you look at people and say well and then now you know then that wealth is inherited <clears throat> it's passed down yeah right and so now it's like well you know my family worked hard for this well yeah we're not saying they did but here right. was the advantage you got to go west and right. land was given to you and, right you know does that yeah. make any sense oh it makes <laughs> a lot but my, here's the deal though my family worked really hard. Yeah, but they weren't give, afforded that opportunity. They we weren't, weren't given anything, but right. maybe a shed out back on the plantation. Yeah. Right? So it's like, but again, you know, Ibram Kendi talks a lot about these racist ideas, right, that started in the 1400s, by the way, mm-hmm. written by Spaniards and Europeans about how lazy and, mm-hmm. and how African, Africans were beastly and all of these things that to this day created the biases that we all have. So if, if, if I see that African-Americans, yeah, they work, but they don't work that hard because they're lazy. That's what, that's what those racist ideas do. It creates these internal biases. So when I say, well, our people worked hard too, some people can't even, can't even hear that because these racist ideas have created internal biases that 
say, well, black people are lazy. It's like, where, well, where'd you get that from? Well, so, so when we make the case that over the years, we have worked really hard, people just don't, they can't hear that. And so that, that therein lies the problem. It's like we spend a lot of our time just kind of getting people to believe that, man, we've worked hard all the time. Like on the plantation, we work from sun up to sundown, right? Making sure that tobacco and cotton and sugar, all of these things are created so that America's economy can, 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 can build the way it has built. So, um, you know, again, man, it's please listen to the history of this, the, 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 the whole history of America. And hopefully some people like you all will get it and, and will start to, to tell that story because a lot of people still, I think they don't even realize that they believe that way. Yeah. Um, that's what internal bias does, right? Yeah. It, it creates this, 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 um, it, it creates this mindset that um, oftentimes is hidden, I think, because when you tell people, it's kind of like they're, they're taking the back, like, whoa, I, like, really? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> like you, you don't, you don't, you don't see that. Um, you know, the great migration, you know, thousands, millions of African-Americans move from the North to the South, thinking that that was the promised land, right? They get to the North and, you know, and they're given menial jobs of cleaning while Europeans that just moved over here, don't know English, um, get the better jobs. Yet these African-Americans, they worked hard in the South they, they, they had, many of them had uh, college degrees, a lot of them secondary degrees, yet they were given jobs like cleaning um, in, these, in these factories when they moved to the north. Yeah. How does that happen? And why, why don't we know about that? Yeah, and again, it's, it's history. I mean, here in Franklin, uh, you know, the uh, slaves and then freed slaves, uh, literally with just their hands, built Natchez Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, built a lot of the buildings in downtown, mm-hmm. uh, including the courthouse. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They built those things. They built uh, a lot of the homes on West Main Street. Mm-hmm. And now, because of gentrification, you know, they can't. They couldn't afford one of those homes. Or, or you drive. When people come visit me, one of the things I like to do, and I, and I hope I do this with the right attitude, is to drive out in the country and show them what we call slave walls. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're those stone walls. Yeah, out there. and you know which ones are slave walls because they're. Um, you know, they've been overgrown, but there's no cement using mm-hmm. those. I mean, the stacking ability now, hundred and some odd years later, they're still there. Now, mm-hmm. if you if you tear them down, you're going to get in big trouble from mm-hmm. historical. And then you see new subdivisions trying to mimic mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, let's come back 150 years from now. That quote slave wall will be still standing. That wall that we put mm-hmm. together in front of the subdivision will probably <laughs> not be there. So you had right. this. But the whole point is that um, you know the. The South, especially, built on slave labor, uh, which is why Andrew Jackson wanted to get the Native Americans out so he so the cotton could just boom mm-hmm. explode, and that happened here in Franklin. Andrew Jackson comes to Franklin to sign the uh, the documents. You knew mm-hmm. that story, didn't you? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. If you go to the uh, temple, uh-huh. the, the Mason, the Mason okay. temple, yeah. th- this was a prequel to the Trail of Tears. Okay, and I can't remember which Indian tribe it was or Native American tribe, but Andrew Jackson came. Franklin with his minister of defense and they met with um, these tribal leaders from across the Southeast at Masonic Lodge mm-hmm. and, and uh, initiated a deal to, to move that group of Native Americans out 
And then that became the Trail of Tears. I mean, it was a prequel. He signed mm-hmm. another deal, for, but that happened right here. And so, you mm-hmm. know, so right here in Franklin, the, the Battle of Franklin and the Civil War, which was basically the war was over after that. Mm-hmm. They just had to mm-hmm. clean it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the, the Trail of Tears or the prequel to the Trail of Tears all started in this mm-hmm. one little, wow. these two huge events in our society wow. or in our country's mm-hmm. history started, you know, right, right here. here. But the, the whole thing of moving the Native Americans out was so that we could bring in cotton and, uh, and, and slavery exploded mm-hmm. um, after that. Mm-hmm. There, in the, I think it's the 1400s as an example. In the 1400s, in the landmass that we now call Williamson County, uh, there were over a half a million people who lived here. Natives. Uh, natives. Mm-hmm. And now in, in Williamson County, the Native American, I don't even know if they show up on, on a... I don't think so. You know, they're, they're it's so, my family and one other family. Yeah, there's so few. <laughs> my wife's Native American. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you know, so you've gone from a half a million. Mm-hmm. To, you know, mm-hmm. Not if, and if they are Native American, the two families that I know of yeah. have moved here from somewhere else. Yeah. They're not yeah. originally right. Right. from here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, and then, but then, uh, you know, we could go on and on about that kind of stuff, but. But there's a reason, uh, the context for all this, again, I think George Floyd was a tipping point Mm -hmm. because, you know, why didn't we act this way with Trayvon Martin? Why didn't we act this way, I mean, really with Emmett Till, if you want to Mm -hmm. go back Mm -hmm. far enough? Yeah. Why wasn't that, you know, uh, the turning point? And, um, but for some reason, this has become the tipping point. And what I'm trying to encourage people to do of my skin color is, look, you just need to sit Mm -hmm. and listen and sit in the pain and the chaos for a while. Mm -hmm. Don't rush through this. Don't, don't say, I wish life, I wish they would just quit doing that. You know, no, no, no. You just need to sit in it for a while and uh, let it, um, just let it percolate inside of you so that you can start to see what, uh, what is happening and why we are where we are. Yeah. That goes against the um, ideology of the American church though. The American church is very celebratory, right? Most of our worship songs are very celebratory. Um, in the African-American community, we have a lot of lamenting songs that have, I mean, the Negro spirituals, they were yeah. all songs of lament, right? Um, and so to ask, like last week, Monday, one of the things that we chose to do is to start that whole gathering out with nine minutes of quiet and lament, um, uh, indicating the nine minutes that the police had his knee in the neck of George Floyd. But, um, but you know, I think for the first time, a lot of people for the first time, that was the first time that they sat in something just to lament. Um, and I think that we need to bring that back. Like we need to bring back to um, the white church, uh, the whole concept of lament, like sitting in the ashes and dealing with the pain of it all and then move on to, okay, so what are we going to do about this? What I'm hearing from a lot of my white friends is, what do I do? What do I do? And I get it, right? They want to change it. You know, they want to fix it so we can move on. This isn't an issue that's going to be fixed in a year yeah. or two. Yeah. Um, so let's sit in this thing. Let's feel the pain of it. Because I think feeling the pain of it all will help in coming up with solutions for how we move forward. But, man, for me, this is a watershed moment for the church, the white church. As I stated in the very beginning of our conversation, over the course of um, – of these generations, man, we've had opportunity where we could have stepped up and we didn't. And so here we are again, it's a great opportunity. And I think, you know, on the front end, I see a lot of action, a lot of action from the white church. Um, People are talking about it. 
I just hope, man, that when this thing gets difficult, when it gets real, um, when you know, when we when we start dealing with some of the economics of all of this, I hope that people stay in it the way they are in it now, um, because that's going to take a whole lot more than you know making a sign and going and walking down the street. I, I love that. Um, I do. I love it. But I'm like, man, will these people be around when it really gets hard, where people come out of the woodwork that, you know, aren't really saying much now because marches don't really, they're not really affecting the money just yet. But when it does, my hope is that, um, you know, people continue to step up. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I know we're about done, right? Well, I want to, <clears throat> you kind of set up this clip really well that I wanted to, okay. to play, but um just talking about how you're hearing this, uh, let's go get it, let's, let's fix this, let's, this, this energy. And Robin DiAngelo kind of addresses that energy from, okay. from, from white people in this video. And I wanted to play this clip and kind of wrap up maybe discussing this. The number one question I get when I give a talk is, okay, okay, now what do I do? And that question has bothered me for a long time. One, to be really honest, I think it's disingenuous. I don't think white people really want to know what to do unless it's the most simplistic thing, which, which is just keep being friendly. That question tends to function as a way to jump over the hard personal work and just get to the answer or get to the solution. It's a little bit arrogant for folks who have never in their life thought deeply about this, and after an hour, they want to get the answer and go fix it. At the same time, we can't wait till we have it all figured out, right? And so I will offer a challenging question back, and then I will answer the what do we do. So what I, my reply to that question is, what about your life has allowed you to be a full functioning, professional, educated adult and not know what to do about racism? How have you managed not to know? Why is that your question? People of color have been telling, this, telling us this for a very long time. So that question is meant to be a challenge. It's also sincere. Take out a piece of paper and start writing down why you don't know. Probably on the first of your list is going to be, I wasn't educated on this. Step one. Two, I don't talk about race. Three, I don't really have relationships across race, or not many. And when I do, we don't talk about race. Five, I, I haven't cared enough. There's your map. And when you get to five, I haven't cared enough. If you can look at yourself in the mirror and say that, then carry on as you always have, but do it with honesty. If you can't look at yourself in the mirror and say, I don't really care, great. Use that motivation to get involved. So that's that's just a portion of the video. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes on that. But yeah. You know, the, the, not to discourage uh, white people from joining us because we absolutely need to band together and <clears throat> listen and move forward and put words into action. But let's be realistic and let's be wise about this because there is a ton of listening that has to be done in the beginning yeah. just to kind of understand. And for many of us to understand, we have been a part of the problem. Like we're not just the the innocent bystander that now is enlightened going, okay, now let's, let's do this. Like, no, no, my actions, my entire life have supported a systemic racist society here. And people it's hard to look hard. in the mirror and say that. I was about to say people have, people have such a hard time hearing that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has to come from you guys. Yeah. Yeah. They will not hear that from me. Yeah. But it's true. 
But they don't really hear it from me yeah, either. I, got, I, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'll be honest. I'm really discouraged with, with things that I'm saying in yeah. conversation and in social media. That I'm just like, man, you don't even want to change. And, and Robin D'Angelo says it. Like She's been at this work for over two decades. She says the majority of white people really don't want to change. Even the ones that come to her conferences and take her classes and go, no, let's do this. What do we do? What do we do? Oh, you mean it's hard? Yeah. Oh, you, oh, you mean I have to get disgusted with my own actions yeah. Yeah. And, and move past that uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. And the majority just go, no, nah, I'd, I'd rather just be warm and fuzzy and, and, and love yeah, people. Because you got to, I mean, because the, it's got to come from a deep moral conviction um, that, uh, that you know, can't come from anywhere else. It's this deep moral conviction that this is what has happened is wrong. And the way you make it wrong is you repent and lament. Um, you know, in the white church, we talk a lot about repentance. Um, but, 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 before you lead a white congregation on lament, you got to tell them what that means mm-hmm. because it just has not, it just has not been done in, yeah. our, in our context. And then yeah. when it gets tough, this is where white privilege comes in because then when it does get difficult, I can just take my ball and go home. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's not going to affect, it's not going to affect my income, it's not going to affect my life, it's not going to affect anything. And just one other thing, and then I'll let you close this out, Anthony, with some of your final thoughts. But when we were talking about economics. One, I think this, again, this is part of history people don't realize, um, and it goes back to Dr. King, um, that, you know, when Doc, Dr. King was talking about race, yes, he received a lot of threats and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, but people forget that race um, was really just one of the things that he spent a lot of time talking with. And what took him to Memphis was a garbage strike. Mm-hmm. What took him to Memphis was fighting for economic change, yes. uh, livable wages, yep. And I'm telling you, people will, people will sit back. You want to talk about race? That's fine. But you start talking about the economy, yep. you'll get killed. Yep. And, and it wasn't until he, basically two things. He started, he started being very, very vocal against the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. but he also started being very, very vocal against capitalism and, and fighting for livable wages mm-hmm. and, and all those things. And that ended up, you know, he, he wasn't killed because he gave I Have a Dream speech. Right. He was, he, was, he was assassinated because he was saying, we have got to pay our workers more yeah. than we're paying them now. The economy has got to change, yeah. and, and uh, people yeah. in power couldn't have that. So, uh, you know, the, re- the rest of the story is history, but now we've romanticized all that um, without realizing what he was talking about that got him in trouble was the economy. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, the more I uh, spend time in this conversation, um, the more I really get people like W.E.B. DeVoy and why he just packed up and left, man. Because, you, you, you know, the, more, the, the, the further into this you get, the more conversations you have, the more you begin to realize, man, is this, is this ever really going to change? Can, can the gospel message trump the message of capitalism? That's really what we're talking about, right? Especially from the church, because I believe the church is the answer, Right. And if we are the answer, those who are in the church, who are Bible-believing Christ followers, who are in power, are going to have to make a decision. Am I going to walk in a Micah 6-8 community, or am I going to acquiesce to the spirit of capitalism? And, and in my opinion, that's, that's where we stand right now. So... Man, I hope I don't have to pack up and move to Ghana. I, although I love Ghana, I've been there four times. Um, but I, I man, well, we, I, need, I, we need you here in Franklin. I so. hope the church, I hope the church does what the church 
was meant to do. Um, and so we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. It's yet to be seen, but we do have an opportunity. Well, we, uh, we are encouraging the Franklin community, the white community here, the church community, to, to really dig into this discussion, to listen, and uh, to be ready and willing to, to take action on this. So if you're listening to this podcast, please, please share it. Uh, please take it to heart. Please do your research. Find your books to read. Find your videos to watch. And, uh, and join us in this as we move forward. Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.